Um, as Dan mentioned, my name is Chris Steinbarger. I'm the director of church life here. And since Dan was gone all week in Louisville, Kentucky, I am here and I get a, the privilege of speaking with you guys today. Um, question for you. Who here uses their cell phone as their alarm clock? Anybody? Yeah, there's a lot of you. I do too. And I had this one cell phone while we were living in St. Louis. And basically, I found out that for some reason there was this glitch in the phone. And it just started turning off on its own. And so I would actually watch it. I would watch it sit there and turn off. And I don't know why it would do that. But when I first discovered that this was a problem was while I was working at Starbucks. And there was times that I had to be at work at 4.30 in the morning. And when your alarm clock turns itself off in the middle of the night and you have to be at work at 4.30, that's kind of a problem. And so you find out very quickly that that is not a good thing to have an unreliable cell phone that, or an unreliable alarm clock that sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And then work can't call you and can't let you know that, guess what? You're late. A lot of things in life are kind of like that. A lot of things are unreliable. Um, sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. I mean, we live in a world that's unreliable. And a lot of the times, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we act in unreliable ways. But what we see in the Bible is that God's promises are true. God's promises are always true. And here at Jacob's Well, we throw this word, word around a lot. It's the gospel. And Tim Keller um, likes to make this distinction between good news and good advice. You see, the gospel is the message. It's the good news that Jesus Christ has come and died for our sins and, and risen again. And the difference between good news and good advice, good advice is something that you're supposed to do. Something that you act upon in order to get a future result. So good advice says if I check off these boxes or if I follow these rules or if I go about this activity, then the future is going to be great for me. Most religions in the world are good advice religions. They're good advice. If you do this or you do that, then things are going to work out. But Christianity is about good news. Good news is historical. Good news is about something that has already happened, something that has occurred, and then our reaction is to respond to that. And the good news, the gospel, is that God's promises are true. That God has stepped into time, he has stepped into humanity, and he has offered us promises, he has offered us good news. And we're going to look at those promises today, and we're going to look at how they affect three areas of our lives. We're going to see how they affect family, how they affect our blessings or our riches, and also our sin. How does God's promises and the fact that they are true, that they're reliable, affect family, blessings, and sin? We're going to be looking at Genesis 31, um, verses 1 through 21. Continuing from last week, if you remember last week, um, we were uh, looking at the life of Jacob. And Jacob and his father-in-law Laban had worked out this business deal where um, Jacob was going to be able to uh, work for Laban. And his wages were going to be the sheep and the goats who were born, who were spotted, speckled, or striped. 
and Laban would get to keep all of the solid-colored animals, um, the black ones or the white ones. And, and there was trickery that was happening between these two figures, and they were trying to one-up each other. And Jacob won the day. Jacob was the one who um, received all the wealth and all the inheritance. And um, so that was happening in Genesis 30. And now we find ourselves in Genesis 31, and we're going to be reading Genesis 31, 1 through 21. It says, Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob had taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was, and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob. And I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and said his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to share his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for um, the way that you communicate to us, that you reveal yourself through it. And Lord, I ask that this day that you would meet with us, that you would teach us from your word. Lord, that we would be able to see your promises, that we would see that you are true and see that we can put our trust in you and that that is the only place um, where we can find security and truth um, is in your promises and in your faithfulness. And I ask that you would just work in our lives this morning and that you would speak through me. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing that we see in this passage is family turmoil. You have Jacob at odds with his father-in-law and with his brothers-in-law. Jacob hears and he sees that his father-in-law and his brothers-in-law are not happy with him. Before, like I mentioned, Jacob had been told by Laban, I want you to work for me, and your wages are going to be all the animals that are spotted, speckled, or striped. And Jacob said, yeah, this this is going to work. I'm going to do this. But then Laban tried to trick him. 
Laban tried to deceive Jacob by taking all of those animals and taking them away so that all he had to work with were solid colored animals. And, and Jacob, in response, decided, well, I'm going dece- to trick him back. I'm going to get him back. And so what he did was he took sticks and he put them in front of the animals when they made it and he faced them in different directions. And, I mean, it sounds really silly, but it worked. God was with Jacob and, and this process that Ron talked about last week worked. And so Jacob became very wealthy and Laban um, did not. He was not able to take advantage of Jacob like he desired to. And so he was upset with him. And his sons and, and him were, were feeling like Jacob had basically stolen everything that was his. And so they accused him. They accused him of stealing their inheritance, of stealing their possessions. And when we look at verse 1 and verse 2, it says that Jacob heard and that he saw. This wasn't just a gut feeling of his, this sense that um, his father-in-law and his brother-in-laws were upset with him. No, this was, this was really happening. And the problem with this was what they wanted to do was cut him off. They wanted to cut Jacob off from any inheritance. And that's not good because Jacob has a family. He's got wives. He has children. And here he is being cut off. There's turmoil within the family. There's division within the family. But while this is happening, God comes to Jacob in a dream. And in verses 11 through 13, what we see is God tells him, I want you to go home. I want you to return to your land. You see, God had promised to Abraham back in Genesis 12. He had promised to Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, that I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you offspring, and through you all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And that promise was true to Jacob. God had given Jacob that promise, I'm going to give you land and offspring, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And that that land was the promised land, and God was calling Jacob, go home, go back to that inheritance. Laban is cutting you off from his inheritance But I have a better inheritance for you. I have an inheritance of mine that I'm calling you to. And so Jacob calls his wives together, Rachel and Leah, and they they have a little powwow. And in verses 4 through 7, Jacob just kind of spells out what's going on. He's like, look, your your father has been treating me really unfairly. I mean, in verse 6, he says, I know, you know how I've served um, with all my strength, that I have worked very hard for him. And yet he's cheated me. Laban had, had been changing his wages. In, in the Bible it says he's changed my wages ten times. And um, that's a little bit of hyperbole. He was exaggerating to say that he's changed my wages a lot. And Laban had manipulated the different situations to try and take advantage of Jacob. And his wives agree with him. In verses 14 through 16, we see that they acknowledge that, yeah, in fact... <laughs> We have nothing left in our father's house. They said, our father has not given us our inheritance. He has actually spent it. And um, although women in those days didn't receive an inheritance, the inheritance went to the sons, what daughters did receive was a dowry. When they got married, they were expecting to receive some sort of dowry from their father. And usually that dowry came out of the bride price, which the groom paid to get married. But Laban had spent it. And his daughters had not received anything. They saw how, how their father was greedy and, and they had, he had cheated them. He had manipulated situations in order um, for his own gain. And uh, as Ron said last week, Laban was a jerk. He was. He was a jerk. 
And he had cut off his own daughters and his son-in-law. And so the wives unite around their husband and they say, yeah, what the Lord has called you to, let's do this. We're, we're going to follow after wherever God is calling us. And so what we see in Jacob's household is unity. And really, if you think back over the last chapters, this is the first time that we have seen unity in Jacob's household. Prior to this, there's been strife. There's been squabbling amongst the sisters. There's been um, turmoil, fighting over um, their husband and fighting over the situation. But now there's unity. And so we see in this family situation, we see both disunity. We see father against daughter, father-in-law against son-in-law. We see disunity, but we also see unity. You see, families, kind of like my cell phone, are unreliable. Sometimes they work really well, and sometimes they don't. And all of you know, I mean, if I say, who's that person in your family, or who are those people in your family that they just always cause trouble? I mean, they, they just, you know, if you had your way, you'd like, I'd really like to just not deal with that person ever. Because they just cause problems. It's messy. Families are messy. There's no such thing as the perfect family. But at the same time, in that mess, families can also be a wonderful thing. Families can be a place of love and encouragement and security. Families can be a place of wonderful unity. Every family is this mixture of disunity and unity it's kind of like my cell phone. It's unreliable. Sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. There was um, this story that AB News, ABC News um, did uh, about a year ago, and it was about this couple um, who died in a hospital in Iowa holding hands. Now, this couple had been married for 72 years. Can you imagine that? 72 years, this family had been together. And um, these people, they were uh, 94 and 90 years old. And they were in a car accident. And the, the car accident put them in the ER. And as they were in the ER, the doctors realized that they weren't getting any better. And so they put them in a room together. And they put them in bed side by side. And they held hands, his left and her right. And that's where they were. When they interviewed the children, the children said that this couple did everything together. And this was a family that was close. They were tight. And the interesting thing, this was crazy. When, when he passed away, he passed away first. He had stopped breathing. But the heart rate monitor continued to record a pulse. And the reason why was because it was registering her heartbeat through his hand. What a beautiful picture of a family in unity. A family that has come together. A family that has lasted for 72 years years. That's awesome. But the thing that ABC News did not mention that they didn't talk about was the struggle, the challenges, because you know, and I know that there is no way that this couple went 72 years in marriage without some major struggle, without major hardship, because there's no such thing as the perfect marriage. There is no such thing as the perfect family. And we know that this couple, by going through 72 years of marriage, they went through really hard times. Whenever you find people who have been married for a really long time and you ask them, how did you do it? Like, what's the secret? And a lot of times you hear things like uh, patience, be patient with each other, or um, forgiveness, that's important, or take it one day at a time, 
or love the other person first. And that's really good stuff. I mean, patience is a good thing. But if you base your marriage, if you base your family off of patience, you see, the problem is, I mean, if I'm going to be honest with myself, I'm just not that patient. Or forgiveness. Forgiveness is a really important word. Forgiveness is really important. But if that's the foundation of your marriage, what happens when you just find yourself really unforgiving? Or what happens when somebody doesn't forgive you? Love. Love is great. Love is a wonderful thing. But I am, a lot of the times, really unloving. I act in unloving ways. You see, if your family, if the foundation of your family, if you base it on these things, forgiveness, love, patience, they're all great. But the problem with them is they're only as strong as your own character. And let's be real. Our character is just not that strong. Our character isn't that strong. And so because of that, families experience disunity. They experience pain, they experience hurt, you experience brokenness within families. Because with the good, there's bad. There's disunity with the unreliability. So what do we do? How do we respond to that? Well, let's look at what brings Jacob's family together. In verses 7 through 13, you see Jacob being honest. He's honest with his wives about what has been happening. Prior to this, we see that he had taken sticks and put them before the animals, and he had turned the animals and faced them in different directions to try and uh, make things work out the way that he wanted. But in 7 through 13, he doesn't say anything about these sticks or about his methods to try and trick and get ahead of Laban. No, he says that it is God. God is the one who has been doing this. God is the one who hasn't permitted Laban to harm me. It's because of what God has been doing. It wasn't my work. It wasn't what I did. It was what God did. And so Laban is, or Jacob is being honest about who is being the real actor here. He's being honest that it is God. And then look at Rachel and Leah's response. In verse 16, they acknowledge that, yeah, this is God's work. It's God who has done this. And we're going to follow after the Lord. We're going to submit to him. So the entire family, they place their trust in what God is doing. They put their trust in God's promises. See, all that fighting, they had been trusting in themselves, but now they're putting their trust in something else. Love each other. Be patient. Be forgiving. That's good advice, and those are good things to do. That is good advice. But that depends on your ability to be able to do those things. See, the gospel, the good news, is that God has promised us something greater that God is faithful, that he is watching over us. And we put, when we put our security, when we put our trust, when we make our identity in God, that is something that's reliable. That is a solid foundation because it's trustworthy, 100%. Laban had once looked at Jacob with great favor, but now all of a sudden he's looking at him with disfavor. He had changed, but God doesn't change. God stays true to his promises. So if we're going to have families that are united, we have to make the Lord the foundation. We have to make him the center of our families. And that brings us to the second point, which is trusting in God's promises for our blessings. All of us have received blessings, riches in one way or another, whether that's through wealth or children 
or the influence that you have in this world, God has blessed you. You have blessings. And you look at this guy, Jacob. He went from having nothing. I mean, he was poor. He was sleeping on rocks. He had nothing. But now all of a sudden he has wealth. He has children. He has 12 sons and who knows how many daughters. He has influence. He has servants. He's acquired quite a bit of wealth. But what was the source of that? Where did he get it from? I said it earlier. It was because of the Lord's promises. In verse 7, it was God who had done these things. It was God who had prevented Laban from taking advantage of him. It wasn't because of this silly process of putting sticks in front of the animals or putting them in different directions. It was God who had done it. Now, that isn't to say that Jacob didn't work hard. In verse 6, it says that Jacob worked very hard. And we're not called to just be lazy and say, okay, God, bless me. We're called to work. But we need to recognize that it isn't our hard work that makes us prosperous. It's God that makes us prosperous. There was this uh, movie that came out in the 90s. It was called Instinct, and it had Cuba Gooding Jr. and Anthony Hopkins in it. And Anthony Hopkins was the scientist who went and studied gorillas in the jungle. And while he was out there, he killed a man, which ended him up in prison, and he was actually in kind of a psych ward. And Cuba Gooding Jr. was the psychiatrist that came to interview him. And they were sitting together in an interrogation room, and Cuba Gooding Jr. asks him a question. And he says, you have to tell me the answer because I'm in control. And Hopkins responds, oh, you're in control, huh? And he leaps across the table and he grabs Cuba Gooding Jr. in a headlock, holds a pen to his neck, and he says, who's in control? Am I? Are you the guards out in the office? And he pulls out a pad of paper and he says, write on this paper, what have I taken from you? And Cuba Gooding Jr. begins to write C-O-N. T. And Hopkins grabs the paper and he throws it off. He goes, wrong! You never had control. You only thought you had control. What do you really control? The temperature of your air conditioning? The stereo in your car? What do you really control? You didn't have control. No. What did I take from you? Write it down. And so he starts to write down F R E E D. And he rips the paper off. He goes, wrong! Freedom? You were never free. Why did you think you were free? What were you doing today at 2 o'clock? You were going to the gym, right? And then in the middle of the night when you wake up sweating, all tied up in knots, what is it that keeps you up? Is it ambition? I know you, boy. I used to be you. One last time, think I won't do it? What did I take from you? And Cuba Gooding Jr. writes down, my illusions. He says, that's right. Maybe you're a student after all. You see, Jacob was finally being removed from the illusion that it was his work, that it was his actions that had caused anything to prosper at all. He was finally recognizing that he wasn't in the control, that it wasn't him that was doing these things, that it was God. It was God who had been providing all of these blessings. So my question for you is, what are your illusions? What do you, what are you deceived by? When you think about your paycheck or your children or the ways that you have influence, your friendships, do you believe that those blessings, those riches in your life are because of what you have done, because of how great you are? Or do you recognize that that's just an illusion? 
God is the one who provides us with our blessings. It is God who has provided us with the riches in our lives. And the way you can look at your life and say, am I under an illusion? Do I think I have control? Is how tightly do you hold on to them? How tightly do you hold on to your riches? How tightly do you hold on to your children? How tightly do you hold on to the riches and the blessings in your life? Or do you see that, no, God is the one who gives these things. And you can loosen your grip. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be good stewards. We should. We should be good stewards with what God has given us. But we need to know that they're not our security. They're not the things that we can put our faith in. That's not where we should place our trust. Because wealth will come and it will go just like that. It comes very easily and it goes just as easily. But God's promises, his faithfulness to us, the good news of what he is doing and what he has done, that's secure. That's what we need to trust in. And Jacob is beginning to get that. He's beginning to trust in the Lord for the direction of his family. He's starting to trust in the Lord for uh, his blessings and for his wealth. But old habits tend to die hard. And what we see is that we also have to trust God's promises in our failures. We ourselves are unreliable. In verses 17 through 21, Jacob, because he's afraid of Laban, because of his insecurity, he secretly takes his family and takes off. You see, in this chapter, in chapter 31, the second most used Hebrew word is the word for steal or deceive. Steal or deceive. If you remember, Jacob's name means um, trickster or... um, yeah, the one, the one who steals and takes things. And, and that was very appropriate because that's what Jacob did. Jacob was, he was a deceiver. He was a liar. He would trick people. He would take advantage of them to get his way. He would try and take control of the t- situation through deception. In verse 19, we see that Rachel steals her father's household gods. And um, Dan's going to cover that last week, so I'm, or next week, so I'm not even going to touch on it. Um, but... In verse 20, we see that Jacob tricked, or more literally, that he stole the heart of Laban. He used deception. You see, he purposely waited until Laban would go off to shear the sheep. Um, Shearing the sheep was a very labor-intensive task. It required a lot of manpower, a lot of time. And so Laban and his sons would be preoccupied with this activity, and they would have gone off to shear the sheep. And that was a perfect time for Jacob to steal away and just take off without Laban noticing. Although he had begun to see that he could trust God, that he could trust in God's promises, that God had promised that he was giving him a promised land, all of a sudden he says, no, I need to take things into my own hands. I need to take care of it myself. I need to take control of the situation, and I'm going to do that through deception, through trickery. You know, uh, we can't rely on family uh, because... That's a mixed bag. And we can't rely on our blessings because, you know what? They'll be here and then they'll be gone. And we can't even rely on ourselves. For Jacob, it was deception. That was what he turned to. What is it that you turn to? What is it that you constantly, habitually return to again and again when you're feeling insecure? When you're feeling out of control? When you don't feel safe? What is it that you go to to try and Help yourself out. Maybe it's not deceit 
like Jacob, maybe you become very critical. Maybe you become critical and judgmental and you just look around and you just see how everybody else is wrong and they're all screw-ups and they aren't right. You're feeling insecure, so you become critical of others. Or maybe it's anger. Maybe you become angry at other people and, and you just start attacking everyone else because you feel out of control, you feel insecure, and so you're going to take it out on other people. Or maybe you don't attack other people. Maybe you attack yourself. Maybe you turn on yourself and you beat yourself up and you feel insecure and you say, I'm just going to drown this. I'm going to bury these feelings and I'm going to numb myself. Maybe you go to alcohol or drugs or even recreation to try and numb the feelings of insecurity. See, our hearts are broken. The biggest gap between God and Jacob wasn't a geographical one. It was a heart gap. It was a heart gap. Jacob couldn't get away from his sin. See, the, the good news, the good news is that God has promised us that he will be with us, that we can trust in him. But we constantly turn away. We try and find control in other things. We try to take control and deal with our insecurities in other ways. And, and those things are always destructive. The brokenness that we experience in our homes, in the world, is because of those things. They're destructive, and the Bible calls that sin. When we trust in our own ways rather than in God's ways. When, when God came to Jacob, though, um, it says, I am the God of Bethel. And at Bethel, in chapter 28, God had come to Jacob, and he met with him. He said, I will be with you. See, God was giving Jacob a promised land, but the reason he was giving him this land was so that they would have a place, that his people would have a place where God would dwell with them in their midst, where God would have a relationship with them because God is a relational God. He desires to have a relationship with us, with us. And, and that sin of ours, that constant unreliability of ourselves separates us from God because God is a holy God and he cannot, he will not tolerate sin. He will not tolerate when we try to control things on our own. And so what he does is he sends his son. The good news is that God came to us in Jesus Christ and that he came and that he died on a cross. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He was completely obedient to God. He lived the life that we were supposed to live. And yet he goes to the cross and he's treated as if he is the ultimate sinner. He is all of our sins, all of our mess is put on him. And God looks at Jesus and he puts our sin on him and he gives us Jesus' perfection, his righteousness. So that when God looks on Jesus, he sees sin. But when he looks on us, he sees perfection so that we can have relationship with God. See, Jacob, Jacob was, was a broken man and we are broken people. But God has provided a way for us to be with him. Jacob had to look forward to that promise. Jacob had to look forward to what was coming. And eventually his descendant, Jesus, would be that promise that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through him. But we get to look backwards. It's good news. It's happened. That promise has come true. Jesus has come. And that good news is where we need to put our trust. Some of you, when you look at your family, you don't see any unity. All you see is disunity. 
But God says, in me, you will find family. You will find a father who loves you, who cares for you, and will never turn away from you. Some of us, we look at our lives and we say, I'm not blessed. I have no riches. I'm poor. I don't have any children. My life is horrible. But God says, trust in me because I have given you an eternal inheritance that is far greater than anything that is on this earth. And we look at our lives and we look at the sin in our lives and we say, I just can't get away from it. And God says, look to me because I have provided a way. If you place your trust in me, I have forgiven you. For you who feel undesirable, Jesus desires you. For those of you who feel unforgiven, Jesus has forgiven you. And we need to place our trust in that. We need to place our trust in the promises of God because it's good news, not good advice. Trust in his promises because he is faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your promises are true. I thank you that we can trust in you. And Lord, I ask that you remind us of that daily, that you remind us of the good news that Jesus came and died on the cross so that we might be forgiven. And Lord, I ask that every single person in this place would place their trust, their security, their faith in that rather than the unreliable things of this world. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.